You're listening to Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to those who lived in the Mesa Verde region hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. This season, we've learned all about Mesa Verde National Park's designation as the 100th International Dark Sky Park. We also learned that this designation does more than just preserve the natural beauty of Earth's dark night skies. This designation also preserves the deep cultural connection that humans have had with the cosmos and all the elements of the skyscape since essentially the beginning of human consciousness. And today, we're going to hear about stars, constellations, and other planets, and the meaning that Mesa Verde descendants continue to find in the night sky, as well as what clues these meanings can give us about how the ancestors of the Mesa Verde and Chaco regions connected with the same dark night sky hundreds of years ago. Mesa Verde is a unique park in that we are preserving an ancestral landscape. People come to Mesa Verde to see the cliff dwellings, but they are also seeing basically the, the same landscape and ecosystem that the ancestral Pueblo people saw when they were here. This is Spencer Burke. My name is Spencer Burke. I'm a park ranger at Mesa Verde National Park. You know, people can come look at Spruce Tree House and be surrounded by the same birds, the same trees and flowers that the people who live there were. Spruce Tree House is a cliff dwelling within Mesa Verde National Park. It is one of the largest cliff dwellings in the park, with 130 rooms and eight kivas. It was likely home to 60 to 80 people. Today, you can view Spruce Tree House from an overlook near the park headquarters on Chapin Mesa. And you can go to Spruce Tree House and look up at the night sky, and it can be basically the same sky that the Pueblo people were seeing, the same stars and planets and Milky Way. I mean, that's that's a magical transporting experience to a lot of people. And for the, the people who lived here, the night sky was a, a incredibly important piece of their lives. Um, the ancestral Pueblo people were farmers and like farmers all around the world, they used the passage of the stars and the planets in the night sky to help track the passage of time, to help track the, the seasons, to help figure out when to plant, when to hold feasts and ceremonies. The, the sky was the calendar and the clock for people in pre-modern times. The night sky has served as the calendar and the clock, and it has also served as a canvas for telling stories. Stories about the values and the essence of who a group of people are. And it continues to hang above us as a tapestry to share with each new generation. If you grew up going to school in the United States, you likely learned about the stars, constellations, and planets through an ancient Mediterranean lens. A lot of our ideas about the personalities of the planets come from Mesopotamia, from Greece, come from the ancient Mediterranean world, and we've taken them with us in European society. This is Dr. Ellingson. Hi, I'm Erica Ellingson. I'm a professor in the Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences at the University of Colorado. While many Euro-Americans, myself included, may have learned the Roman, Greek, or other Mediterranean names for stars and planets, 
as well as their connected mythologies, you know, such as Mars being the Roman god of war or the Greek Pleiades. There are, of course, as many names and star stories around the world as there are cultural groups of people. The reactions that people had to looking at the same things in the sky are very different across the world. And as we've heard previously this season, the tracking of the sun and moon have been a critical tool for cultures to plant and harvest crops around the world for thousands of years. And it turns out the stars can be used in the same way. As the Earth rotates around the sun, you could think of it as standing on Earth and seeing the sun move through the backdrop of the stars over the course of the year. So every star has a season where you can see it and a time when it disappears. And people for many thousands of years have used that pattern in order to mark different times of year. One of the ones that has been used all over the world for all sorts of different purposes is the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. The Pleiades is a cluster of stars in the northwest part of the larger constellation that you might know as Taurus. It is about 444 light years from Earth, making it among the nearest star clusters to us. And like many stars in the night sky, the Pleiades goes through a period of invisibility where the sun is in the way, close to the Pleiades in the sky. And so what you can do is stay up all night and watch to see the Pleiades, and one day, you're going to lose it. It's going to be lost in the brightness of the sunset. You wait a month, a month and a half, and then the sun moves away and the Pleiades reappear in the sky in the morning. So different cultures will take the same viewed phenomenon and use it to suit the needs, their needs, where they are on the Earth. The night sky is almost like a documentation. It's it kind of like a, a book. One of those constellations that, that we kind of watch throughout the year is the constellation we call Delieh. And Delieh is also the constellation that is known as Pleiades and most commonly known as the Seven Sisters. This is Ravis Henry. And Ravis is Navajo, or Diné. The area that we refer to today as the Mesa Verde region falls within the traditional homelands of the Navajo. And as Ravis was saying, the Pleiades is an important constellation for the Navajo people still today. So that constellation, Dilyehe, is one that our people watch. And we watch that throughout the seasons. When it reappears, you know, at certain parts of the night sky after sunset, um, that defines different seasons and different times of the year. And there's like a period in the springtime when that constellation, here on Navajo land, when we look up to the night sky, that constellation disappears. And it disappears from our view for about six weeks or so. And when that constellation disappears, our people know that it's planting season. And that is when our people would put seeds into the earth. The Pleiades, or Dilyehe, being a relatively small cluster of bright stars, has actually been said to look like a handful of seeds being scattered onto the ground, which makes it very fitting as a sign for planting. They say that if we plant before the constellation disappears, 
then it's too early that our crops will probably freeze um, or the winds might be too strong and rip out the seeds from the earth. If we plant after they reappear, then the uh, constellation that Yeha might stop the rains from coming. They might dry out the seeds. They might burn the seeds from the summer heat. We talked previously about how much of the Euro-American understanding of the night sky stems from ancient Roman, Greek, or other mythologies of the Mediterranean. So I asked Ravis if he could share some of the similarities and differences between other Roman or Greek constellations and Navajo constellations. Some of our constellations are smaller than some of the Greek constellations, and some are actually larger. So they are actually, there might be like two or three different Greek constellations combining into one that makes up the Navajo constellation. There's easily a dozen different Navajo constellations that are most prominent throughout the sky that most of our people know, and then there's several others that are a lot smaller and not so prominent or talked about. There are four constellations, or singular stars, in the Northern Hemisphere that you can usually see even if you don't have very dark skies. And chances are, even if you don't know very much about the night sky, You've heard of at least three. First is the North Star, Polaris. This is one that doesn't appear to move throughout the night. All the other stars kind of appear to rotate around it. And that particular star, we identify or we call it Nahokons. The Nahokons translates to the revolving motion of the stars and, and the night sky, the direction that they move. It's kind of like how the stars are falling. You know, as we watch up the night sky, they're moving kind of to the left. And and, and they um, they rotate throughout the night. They're, they're never in one place except for Polaris, which to our eyes, our perspective, it's centralized and everything else revolves around it. So Nahokons, is actually um, the term for the direction, uh, the cardinal direction north. Um, and is the fire or the the fireplace of the night sky. And that's the uh, North Star of Polaris. Another very prominent constellation that you've likely seen or at least heard of is the Big Dipper, also known as Ursa Major. And for us, that one is identified as Nahokonspakon, which is the male revolving one. So it's it's uh, gender separated here, and this one's the male version of the revolving one. On the opposite side of the North Star from the Big Dipper is the constellation Cassiopeia, which looks like a big W if you don't have very dark skies and can only see the most prominent of its stars. And Cassiopeia, in our language, is Nahokonspa'ad, which translates to the female revolving one, Nahokonspa'ad. Um, so that's, those, those three constellations are tied together, um, and they symbolize basically the fireplace of the night sky, and the Big Dipper represents the men, and Cassiopeia represents the women. 
Um, and there's a lot of stories and teachings behind that, behind those constellations about um, raising a family, responsibilities of fatherhood, motherhood, um, and, and so forth. And the fourth very prominent or well-known constellation for people in the Northern Hemisphere is Orion, which contains three bright stars relatively close together in a straight line, which kind of resemble a belt. That constellation um, is also one that we observe, um, and it includes all of Orion and then a few other stars as well. But we identify that constellation in our language as Atzeh which I guess the literal translation would be like the the slender one, the first slender one, um, identifying like a very skinny individual somewhat of a warrior-like person, um, but that's Atsa and he is that of Orion. Ravis was gracious enough to share a few more constellations with us, and their Greek and Roman counterparts that are a bit less prominent in Euro-American culture. There's another individual that we call Hastin Sikai, and Hastin Sikai would translate to um, the man who's standing, standing with a solid stance, I guess you could say, kind of like his firm footing onto the ground, um, foot facing opposite directions. Uh, and that, that person who's team security is, is a prominent constellation with our stories. And that one, um, is part of Corvus of, of that, of that constellation. And then, the other one, which is um, also another person, we call him like almost like Orion's name. So, so Orion, the Navajo name for that is which would um, the first slender one or skinny one. This one, so uh, would be translated to like the first big one or the first large large man or first large person. Um, and this person sits towards the southern sky, night sky, and Atsatsuh is um, part of uh, Scorpius. And the last Navajo name that Ravis shared with us is for an element of the night sky that Euro-Americans don't necessarily consider a constellation, but it is extremely special and rare to see in person due to light pollution. You must have very, very dark skies to be able to see it. That would be the Milky Way, which we identify as Yekaistaha. And Yekaistaha is kind of like, it's tied to the early dawn, so the early morning. And Yekaistaha, I guess, would translate to like the one that's waiting for the dawn. Yekaistaha. I know and understand that um, some of our, uh, the solar system are identified in, in our prayers. This is Octavius. My name is Octavius Seotua. I'm from Zuni with the uh, Zuni Cultural Resource Advisory Team. As we've mentioned throughout this podcast, the Mesa Verde, Chaco, and Four Corners regions are the ancestral and traditional homelands of dozens of cultural groups that still live in the Southwest today. One of those groups is the Zuni, Today, they live in western New Mexico, about 150 miles west of Albuquerque. Our history states that our people were migrating through 
the Mesa Verde within the northern section of our ancestral lands and uh, Mesa Verde is one of the stops, Chimney uh, Rock, Holman uh, Weep, and all the other places. We've heard from Octavius, as well as another Zuni man, Curtis Quam, in previous episodes this season, as they've shared the Zuni connection to the sky. And of course, the Zuni have a deep connection to the stars as well. Octavius says that in Zuni prayers, they mention certain constellations and elements of the night sky. And he was gracious enough to share some of those names with us. It starts with the sky uh, that's called the Hapoyan. And then the uh, Milky Way is Yupyahan. Epilak is, uh, I think, the Orion's Belt. Quililikta, Kupag, the the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper. And finally, means all of the glittering stars. Tsukapa is like a glitter. Ashwani is is, uh, sort of important. Uh, All the glittering important stars. So none of them is is omitted within our prayers. Those are the ones that are mentioned in our prayers. And those prayers are done by all the societies, the rain priests, the kivas, the medicine society, all of them uh, identify with uh, these individual stars and, and the, the galaxy uh, movement is all identified within our prayers. The stars and planets that move across our skies have done so in just about the same way for millions of years. And while humans have observed and tracked these consistent movements for about as long as we've been humans, there are other celestial phenomena that occur seemingly unpredictably or without warning. While today we have modern astronomical tools to predict these once unpredictable occurrences, things like approaching comets or eclipses, these phenomena would have occurred suddenly to our ancestors. And as we heard in the previous episode about the moon and eclipses, these unpredictable or chaotic events likely would have had great cultural effects on these people. Things like comets and eclipses are things that even now we are all just blown away when they happen in the sky. If you could imagine when something like that happens to people who are even more attuned to the normal cycles of the sky and the sky has a really deep meaning for them both um, in terms of how they're living and also spiritually as well. When something amazing like that happens, it must have had great significance to them. They must, it must have really affected them very deeply. Comets and eclipses don't happen every day, but they are much more common for humans to witness than something such as a supernova. So something like a supernova going off, this is a star that comes out of nowhere. In 1054, in the heyday of Chaco, there was a really bright one that occurred that would have been seen all over the world. So what exactly is a supernova? Supernova is a rare event that happens when a very massive star, big star, comes to the end of its lifetime. Now, hold tight, we're going to get a little scientific here. You may already know this, but our sun is a star. And many other stars in the universe are also suns. And a sun supports itself against the crush of gravity by burning hydrogen to helium in its center. It's able to do this because gravity crushes 
the center of the sun so hard that it gets hot enough to have hydrogen turn into helium via nuclear fusion. Now, as the sun burns, eventually it runs out of fuel in the center of the sun, and it can go through and it can burn helium. It can go burn a few other elements, but eventually the star will run out of fuel in its center. When that happens, gravity takes over and crushes the star. And what happens then is that there is a big reaction. Everything heats up. There is a huge amount of fusion and an explosion, which blows the star apart. What this looks like, even from very far away, is that a star which might have been a normal, ordinary star, doesn't look all that special to us, all of a sudden becomes a big, bright explosion. In a matter of seconds, it'll become the brightest star in our sky. And this is exactly what happened in 1054, where an otherwise unremarkable-looking star suddenly exploded. And in Chaco Canyon, it would have come out of nowhere in the morning sky and been as bright as Venus, actually as bright as the moon, visible in the daytime for weeks, and then visible in the nighttime sky for many months afterwards. Out of nowhere, it is something so bright that must have been quite an extraordinary thing. And it must have had great meaning. You know, certainly, uh, people must have been very concerned when that happened. Even today, the aftermath of this significant moment in the history of human astronomy is still visible in the night sky. What we see in that place in the sky nowadays is a um, big nebula, a big pile of glowing gas. And we can say that was the location of the supernova that happened in 1054. We can even watch it. It's still expanding in space. You may have heard the name of this nebula before. Today, we refer to it as the Crab Nebula. So we know exactly where it was. We have records from, in written language, from Chinese and other sources that say, this is the date, and this is how bright, this is where it was, and this is how bright it is. So we have a good idea of what happened, but what we don't know is what was the reaction, what was really the experience that people in Chaco Canyon and other parts of the world had to this experience that was visible all across the world. Now, as we've talked about in previous seasons of the podcast, the ancestral Pueblo people did not have a written language in the same way that modern Euro-Americans might consider something a written language. But that certainly doesn't mean that they didn't record events or thoughts in ways that made sense to them. What we do have from Chaco Canyon is the possible recording of this in a piece of rock art up in one of the canyons near Chaco Canyon. Now, this is highly speculative, and this particular piece of rock art is a painting of a crescent moon. We do know the phase of the moon when the supernova went off, something that looks like a star and something that looks like a handprint. You could look at that and say these are sky phenomena. There is someone who was a sky watcher, as all people at that time were sky watchers, that put this up and maybe they're doing the supernova, there. they're depicting the supernova there. And there are other people who say there are lots of other crescent moons and handprints and star pictures all over. It doesn't mean that at all. It's simply someone put these symbols up, but it does not signify anything special or a particular event. And we really can't tell. So rock art that depicts things like this, there is a little bit of our imagination. What does it look like to me? Look like to us in this century? And... Um, 
we know this event happened. We know it must have had meaning. Whether this petroglyph is a depiction of that is very, very speculative. Unfortunately, it is currently extremely difficult or many times impossible to date rock art. You can hear much more about this in the episode titled What is Rock Art in Season 4? But essentially, with the current technology we have, efforts to date pieces of rock art would risk damaging or destroying the piece altogether. So it's simply not worth the risk to do so. This supernova in 1054 was just one in a series of celestial events that they would have been able to witness. In the Chaka world, the supernova was followed not long after by an apparition of Halley's Comet. And so this, again, would have been something that would have been extremely startling. This comet would have appeared in the sky and hung in the sky um, over Chaco every night for several weeks before eventually fading and going away. Again, they would have known this. It probably would have had meaning to them, but we don't know what. And there, again, may be a piece of rock art in Chaco Canyon, which might show something like a star with some flames. Speculative, very difficult to understand, very difficult to really be sure about. And then to top it off, this was a great century for astronomy in Chaco Canyon. To top it off, there was a total eclipse of the sun that happened in 1097. And this, again, must have been absolutely um, devastating to witness. While we don't know for sure exactly how these events affected the people of Chaco or other cultural groups in the Southwest, their descendants, who still have strong cultural ties to the skyscape, may be able to shed some light on how their ancestors may have viewed or felt about these phenomena. In the next episode, we'll hear more about the way that two descendant communities of the region, the Zuni and the Navajo, view the sky, how these views have been passed down for generations, and how storytelling in the stars has shaped who these two diverse groups are today. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Association. This season is made possible through a grant from Colorado Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan of 2021. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and we're mixed by Ken Petrosky. Our theme music is by David Morella. For more information about the Zuni people, the Navajo people, and Chaco Culture National Historical Park, you can find links to their respective websites on our website, mesaverdevoices.org. If you plan to visit Chaco, be sure to check their website for current travel conditions, as the park road is prone to washouts. For more information about dark skies at Mesa Verde National Park, visit nps.gov forward slash M-E-V-E and follow Mesa Verde National Park on Facebook and Instagram for up-to-date information on park hours and road and trail openings. Special thanks to Octavia Sayatua, Curtis Quam, Ravis Henry, Spencer Burke, and Dr. Erica Ellingson for sharing your wisdom and stories with us. And thank you to Betty Maya Foote for your help with additional research for this episode. Listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>